This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hi, and welcome to Graphic Novel TK. I'm Gina Gagliano. And I'm Allison Wilgus. We're excited today to talk about what an editor does to talk about a book they're working on to the rest of the people at the company, who then will be working to market and publicize and sell the book. This is a weird part of an editor's job because there isn't really a name for it, but it's super important, obviously. Uh, it can be w- actually one of an editor's most important responsibilities. Uh, we have a super exciting guest today, Connie Stu, who is the executive editor of Roaring Brook Press. She works there working with a lot of prose authors and picture books, but also doing some comics, including working with Dan Santat and Tilly Walden. She edited Spinning and On the Sunbeam and Jason Waltz and Shannon Hale and Win Pham, who did Real Friends. Um, another super cool part of her job, or something that I think is a super cool part of her job, is that she gets to work with comics creators who are doing picture books um, like Vera Broskel and Jake Parker. Um, so, Connie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm, I'm super excited. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little about who you are, how you got into comics and what you're doing now? Sure. Um, so as Gina mentioned, I am an executive editor at Roaring Brook Press, and I also uh, am an occasional guest editor on the first second list, which is just a, a dream come true. I first got into comics um when I was in college, my brother dragged me to Dragon Con. He's a gamer. Nice. And I wandered around um, looking for something, you know, more literary <laughs> for my interests and found myself in the comic section in back then, the basement, <laughs> where, uh, not the main floor, but that's where I, I felt like I belonged. And I remember walking away with a copy of Same Difference by Derek Kirk Kim. And that was my first exposure to um, something beyond the Sunday funnies. And uh, I read it, loved it, and um, come to find years later, for a second, republished that very same book. At one point, I owned three different editions of that book. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. I I, I then was like, this is a good reason to give this book to a friend. I do not need three copies of this. (laughs) How much I like this book. Yeah. How did you come... To have three copies, three editions. You kick around in comics long enough, they just sort of get it. It's like dust bunnies under your couch. (laughs) Multiple copies of the same book. Yeah, yeah. Um, And people just hand it like, you have to read this. Exactly. Yeah, I think uh, that was a lucky first buy, I guess. Yeah, that's a a hell of a first buy. That's like a classic. Yeah. Why doesn't Dark Kirkham make more comics all the time? I'm wondering about that. It is a sad thing for us that he has abandoned comics for animation at present. But maybe he'll come back someday. Derek, if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then when I got into publishing, I first started at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. And I worked with an amazing manager, Alvina Ling, who let me do everything I wanted and by that, I mean just giving me the creative freedom to explore different formats and age groups. So 
Um, there I worked on everything from board books, picture books, middle grade, YA. But um, my heart really was in graphic novels. And one of my first acquisitions is this YA novel called Happy Face by Stephen Emond. And it was a fully illustrated on YA novel. And um, I remember... That was my way of pretending I was doing <laughs> comics because Little Brown at that time didn't publish any and he didn't know what to do with it. So it ended up being a, a great first acquisition. And another editor there, um, Joe Monti, sensed that I really wanted to do more in graphic novels. And so he gave me a crash course and said, read Blankets, Black Hole, Fun Home, Mouse, and that's when, you know, all the books that I hadn't been familiar with beyond whatever I just came across at comics stores and shows, like, that was, like, my real education, I felt. Still learning, though. <laughs> yeah. uh, so then how did you start working at Roaring Brook from there and doing comics with them? Well, there is this one book called Anya's Ghost <laughs> and, that I read while I was at Little Brown. And I remember at the time, all the starred reviews kept rolling in and we were just counting them and everyone's saying, what kind of book is this? Why is it getting starred reviews? Is it a graphic novel? It is. What is a graphic novel? <laughs> and um, I remember looking at the, the spine and saying, wow, for a second, this, this, this publisher knows what they're doing. And then going to... Um, New York Comic Con later that year and going to the booth and being like such a weird, awkward fangirl. I saw <laughs> Callista at the time. She had blue hair. Oh, there was the blue hair. The blue hair face. Yeah. yeah. That's early days, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was pink for a long time. Yeah. So blue haired Brill. And uh, <laughs> that's, I remember shyly like buying a book from her and running off. It turned out it was a Roaring Brook book. <laughs> it wasn't even a first second. And so uh, the publisher at Roaring Brook at the time, Simon Bowden, was looking for a new editor and reached out to me when I was at Little Brown. And I remember one of the, the, I guess I hate to say require one of the requirements of me going over, but one of the, the things I wanted was um, to be able to edit for for a second on a selective basis. So I kind of wrapped that into my, yeah, yeah. my employment. Yeah, I've done such good graphic novels since then. Been very lucky, and under Gina's tutelage too. This is my that's my second crash course in yes. We used to have a lot of conversations really late sure. after everyone else had left the office about the comics industry. Oh, for sure. For and sure. the book industry. Yeah, I think that um when I first started I remember being really nervous because I had such respect and admiration for the first second team and everyone ended up being really nice. And then I thought are they just nice to everyone? <laughs> and um, um, Gina, you were very nice to me from the get-go. <laughs> That's how we started having those yes, long conversations. She's like that. My opinion also is that you're very nice. So, <laughs> so number one, be a nice person. In the yes, <laughs> indeed. I feel that 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 is always a good searching for a job recommendation or searching for a publisher to work with recommendation. Mm -hmm. um, so, what does your job? look like? What do you do as an executive editor? Well, 
there's a misconception that editors read all day and edit all day. And unfortunately, that always happens at nights and weekends. Mm -hmm. During the day, it's a lot of emails and a lot of meetings. And oftentimes, authors will wonder, well, what are they meeting about? And what are these emails about? And um, I sort of call it death by a million paper cuts, you know, <laughs> where um, your email span everything from submissions that agents are sending you. So um, this is not even adding in the time of actually reviewing the submissions. It's just looking at the pitch and sort of logging um, what's been sent to you. And then at any given day, an editor is working on at least three seasons. You're acquiring for one season, you're editing for the next, and you're getting ready to promote and pitch to librarians and your sales team on books that are further in production. And so all of those emails, all of those meetings pertain to different stages of a book to a point where sometimes when the book actually comes out, um, it already feels like yesterday's news. So before we dive into talking about that whole process in-house of talking to the whole team, can you just tell us if there's a difference between being an editor and executive editor? Like how, how are those two jobs different? It does sound fancier. Yes. It's like two E's. It's true. The, the executive editor on a very basic responsibility level pretty much does what um, an editor does. Uh, we acquire, edit, and then advocate for the books in-house. I think that um, a difference between ex- uh, oftentimes with experience, what an executive editor gains, someone sort of moving up the editorial chain is um, you develop a, a, a personality for your list. And so um, somebody starting out might just be eager to acquire whatever is working, whatever their company is excited about. And over time, what you really do want to hone, um, hopefully, is a personality, um, a brand, um, for lack of a better word, so that when people see a book, they know um, or are not surprised that the book was edited and acquired by a certain person. That's super cool to know. Thank you. So today we're talking about advocating for a book in-house. Can you talk about who the people are that you work with to get people excited, the books that you're working on? Sure. So the timeline of uh, a book's life starts with um, the agent. And so if you really want to go way back, um, editors are networking with agents, lunching them, meeting them for coffee, drinks, whatever it takes to break down um, you know, the walls of communication and, and talk about interests. And, um, a lot of times you talk about, um, things that aren't related to books just to get to know one another. And so, um, there you really start the process of finding that perfect book for you. And then, um, when the agent submits the work for Roaring Brook, uh, you bring that project that you're excited about to editorial meeting and every publisher is different for some publishers their editorial meeting is massive um, for some it they don't have an editorial meeting the editor just decides that they love a book and then take it to their publisher to get the okay to acquire it and um, at Roaring Brook it's not a massive group it's a group of about seven editors um, but our publisher is in that meeting and so depending on the reads and feedback I get from my colleagues she can give me the okay as to whether or not um, I'm able to move something to acquisitions and so the pitching begins there if I'm sitting at the table and I say 
I love this project. I acknowledge that it has flaws, but I know exactly how to fix them. Sometimes I'll even say, here are the five bullet points for how I would fix it. <laughs> and so when my publisher and when my um, fellow editors see the natural, organic, raw enthusiasm, you can start that ball of energy there and getting everyone to be supportive of that particular book. And so then I mentioned acquisitions. Yeah. Wait, sorry, just going back to that editorial meeting. Oh, sure. How, um, like, what do people see in that meeting? Like, are you kind of coming to the meeting and holding up the thing and being like, this is the first time you're seeing it. It's so exciting. And then yeah, they like, all kind of like, do they gaze have homework at it? for the meeting? Where yeah. they're, do. Where they <laughs> have to actually, and you're like quizzing them, like, did you actually read the pitch or did you, are you just pretending like you did in this meeting? Oh, or? They, they do read it. We send it out. Uh, we try to send it out about a week ahead of time. And so they have a week to read. And this is this editorial meeting involves novels, too. I was going to say. Not expected to read the whole novel, but enough to get a sense of the voice, pacing. Um, and the concept is usually in an agent's pitch, yeah, which is why it's important for an agent to write a damn good pitch. <laughs> and a brief side note for comic-exclusive exclu- people listening to this. Uh, a lot of comics are sold on proposal. Most novels are sold at least in early novels, are sold as a finished novel. So A full first draft. Yeah. It's not like with comics where usually it's like, I did 10 sample pages. Like, nope. <laughs> nope. All 40 to 90,000 words yeah. <laughs> are written. Um, but yeah, for a, a comics proposal, you get that outline and the sample script and sample chapters. And, and that's what I would be sending out to my editorial readers. And um, hopefully they can read those pages. They may not yeah. be able to read the 90,000-word YA fantasy, which <laughs> I wouldn't be bringing anyway. So in that meeting, that's where we talk about um, people's uh, reaction to the proposal. Yeah. And does your opinion ever change after that discussion? It only changes when... My enthusiasm for a project is around 75%, if that makes sense, where I read something and I either really like the voice, the concept, or in, say in comics, the art, yeah. and the saleability. And if I sense either, you know, at least two of those things, I generally bring it to my editorial meeting. Um, but if not, I'm not feeling all four of those things, you can talk me out of it. So if I bring something where I love the art and the voice is great, but it's about, you know, the life of a pimple <laughs> as a middle grade novel or something like that, when someone's yeah. like, I'm not sure who would buy that. And I say, but it's so funny. And there's so much emotional resonance and depth in this blemish. Um, <laughs> They could they could say, okay, really think about who you're pitching this to, whether or not we could find an audience for it. Yeah, then you can talk me out. And for books that you are really excited about, do you feel like this is like an early chance for you to start honing your like defenses of this book, especially if it's kind of a weird book? Because I mean, obviously, these are your coworkers, like really close mm-hmm. coworkers. So they're not like a really hostile room, but mm-hmm. the further in the process you go, the more you're going to be working with people who aren't necessarily. Mm-hmm. So is that, is that part of what you're doing is like figuring out how am I going to convince people that this book is a genius book? Absolutely. Absolutely. You go in and you 
hear everyone's criticisms and then practice on how you <laughs> address them and shoot them down one by one until you get what you want. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying that acquisitions is the next part. Yes, acquisitions is the next part. Um, the acquisitions team involves everyone from John Yeager, the president of the Macmillan Children's Publishing Group, um, Tom Cronin, his uh, right-hand finance guy, um, Allison Verost, VP of Marketing Publicity, and then their teams. And then we have um, Jen Edwards, our head of trade sales, and um, our representatives from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, our indie booksellers. And when you say that, you mean like the in-house staff who work with those people exactly. and not like people from Amazon don't no, come to the No, meeting. it's in-house people who sell to those accounts. And um, Walmart, Target, you name it, the yeah. people are there. It's a very large meeting. So how how does that go? How do you work to get those people on board with the books that you're pl- hoping to do? Sure. So one of the things that we do prior to the meeting is pull together acquisitions materials, and that includes the memo and the P&L, and then any other supplementary material. And for people who may not have listened to our terminology episode, what what's a P&L? Sure. So a P&L is a profit loss statement. It's basically an editor's projection on how well they think the book will perform in the marketplace. How does an editor come up with those numbers? Some say they make it up. <laughs> Some say they put in the, the advance that they would like to be approved for, and then they make it up. <laughs> My instinct is to always want to make it up. And then I think, no, I can't do that. (laughs) And so it starts with the comps. And when we say comps, that's short for comparative title. So comparative title is what else exists in the marketplace that can be used as a reliable example of how your book will perform. So if I have something, uh, a middle grade contemporary realistic graphic novel that is uh, a lot about atmosphere and emotion, coming of age, and um, um, friendship. I may look at Mariko and Julian Tamaki's This One Summer as a comp. If I am looking at a book about um, summer camp and um, finding confidence in yourself and um, feeling out of place, I may look at Vera Braskell's Be Prepared. And so Generally, those comps sometimes can feel a little pie in the sky, but why not aim high when you bring a book in front of everyone? And so how do you make sure that the people in the room are excited and get on board with with the books that you're bringing? I think it starts with your memo, which includes the titles of your comps and their sales. And it also includes selling points. And so I think that's where you start to make everyone's job easy. And that is sort of my um, uh, guiding principle on, on things an editor can do to make it easier for people to really rally behind your your book is like put yourself in the shoes of the other departments of sales, of marketing, of publicity, and give them what they need in order to be excited about the book. So if you know that an author has a really strong Twitter presence, you want to mention that in your memo. You want to mention that when you're presenting the book at acquisitions. If the author has, um, you know, extensive uh, outreach with 
educators and librarians, you want to mention that and you want to, you know, if, if even possible, sometimes have a couple of ideas of how they can parlay that into their own marketing plans come time. You want them to envision working on the book. I, I was just thinking this. I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking like if you, for instance, or this is an author who regularly goes on like giant national self-funded, I want to go all the school visits and I want to talk to every single librarian. And like they historically do all that legwork, presumably yeah. sales, for instance, or publicity would love to hear Absolutely. that this person will show up to literally as many schools as you can make. And knows how to yeah. interact with people and is eager to. So that's <laughs> also important. Not a given with cartoonists. <laughs> True. But if not, then what else, right? It's yeah. always thinking, you know, not everyone's going to be cookie cutter. Not everyone's going to have a great Instagram presence <laughs> or yeah. something. Mm-hmm. And and if not, then, then you would say, the people in the comics community love this person. They're elusive, yes, but that makes them more interesting. <laughs> it's like a cryptid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every time there's a sighting, everybody gets very excited. <laughs> yeah. So does your personal enthusiasm for a project factor in? I think so. I, th- I mean, it's the first time people are hearing someone talk about the book. You sent out the materials. You sent out why you want to uh, acquire the book. You sent out how you can acquire the book with the PNL. You shared the manuscript itself. What is it? Well, that's the manuscript. Um, I think that the sort of X factor is in someone actually looking you in the eye and saying, we need to publish this book. We are the best publisher for it. Yay. It's always a good time when you get everyone to agree to that. It's true. This is kind of like, I don't mean to like get too real here, but is that, I mean, I assume it can be a little bit scary because like in a way you're kind of staking your own reputation every single time you go in one of these meetings you're like you can believe me i know what i'm talking about i have this proven track record i i'm telling you this book is going to be great and do well and you should believe me because like i i assume that's at least like medium nerve-wracking sometimes absolutely and also no editor has a perfect track record yeah (laughs) so oftentimes i'm going in there and thinking about my failures and then really hoping they don't remember any of them. <laughs> of the universal experience. <laughs> the uh, the core of insecurity that drives you. It turns it's really fear that makes you better. <laughs> so once they have forgotten all of anyone's failures, mm-hmm. gotten on board with this project. You're swept you, away by your joy and enthusiasm. Yeah, you go book. ahead and acquire it. What's the next point after that that you're talking to the larger team about the book? It really depends on the author. Most of the time, we just quietly go into our caves and work on the book and hopefully emerge a fully formed graphic novel, right? Um, So like flash forward two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A montage of crying and tapping at the computer. Or if you're Tilly Walden, it's like five months later. Five months later. Two years later. (laughs) A 300-page book occurs. The, the the first, yeah, round of sketches for a 300-page book arrives on your lap. Um, but other times, and, and um, I've seen this for comics as well. Like, Gina, you mentioned Tilly. You were excited about Tilly from the get-go. Yeah. Whereas, like, for most authors, you would, you know, go to your revision cave and be producing a project. Um, you were already talking to a lot of people about Tilly. Um, she did have 
two short comics out already and, and had gained traction and some media attention. But um, yeah, and she was at CCS. So she had built a lot of really good connections exactly. a lot of comics people, despite being so young. And that is something that was mentioned at acquisitions is that she's young, but fierce and well-connected. And um, so it started with the deal announcement um, yeah. where we, we sort of, wave our flag to the public and say, look what we have. We're so excited. And then after that point, you go into your vision cave. <laughs> yeah. And then so the next thing that happens after that is launch. So these meetings are called different things at different publishing houses. Sometimes they're called the sales launch. Sometimes they're called the focus meeting. But really what it is is after a book has been acquired, as Ali said, it can be two years down the road before mm-hmm. you have a book ready to share. And so what our sales launch um, does for our in-house you know, sales and marketing and publicity teams is you're basically reintroducing the book. So many books go to acquisitions. Some don't get acquired. No one is tracking every single book. And so in many cases, they've forgotten about your book. So it's a great time to remind them of why you love the book so much, why it's uh, not only a worthy project, but one people need to pay attention to. And so if you do a good job at acquisitions, you can take a lot of what you talked about, a lot of what you have tried out on your team and hone it and, you know, use it for your big relaunch of or, or introduction of that book. So for that meeting, is it a similar group to the acquisition meeting who comes? Yes. And, and and more. <laughs> and is there stuff that you get to show them? Or are you just kind of like standing in front of the room and being like, this book, amazing. Remember the title in your minds? Or like, do you put together any materials for them? There is a PowerPoint. Nice. Which is helpful. The PowerPoint didn't always exist. <laughs> but yeah, it was like paste-ups or something before then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those, phone those olden days where no PowerPoint <laughs> occurred. A lot of spray adhesive. <laughs> Imagine this. <laughs> Picture this in your mind. I have a poster board. Yeah, exactly, exactly. A storyboard holding. The only color printer up. in the building is broken, and so just imagine this is incredible. I colored this myself. <laughs> I made this myself. So in preparation for these launch meetings, the editor first drafts via a template what we call a tip sheet. It's also called a title fact sheet elsewhere. This is a cheat sheet for sales. So when they go to their accounts, they have sort of this memo about this book right in front of them. And it includes selling points, and that's just sort of things that might be of interest to their account, like the author is really promotable, and that way they can say, if you want the author to come for an event, it says right here, they are very promotable. Um, It also includes author bio, um, a short description of the book, and then any praise that the author has received for prior books. And so at at a glance, um, a a sales representative for indie bookstores, BNN, Target, all of those accounts um, can be able to advocate for your book. So that's another area where it's important to do a good job. You want to make sure that you put in things that are interesting and are actually going to help move copies of the book. And so you can say, author is a nice guy. That's great. (laughs) <laughs> but is author a nice guy with a platform of a hundred thousand Twitter followers? Yeah, you know, um, so you you want to be smart about that. Yeah, and you know, maybe if 
the author is a nice human who doesn't have a hundred thousand Twitter followers. Maybe there's other interesting things about them that make them mm-hmm. a better story. Of course, you can say debut author. You can say um, if it's a, a book by someone um, from a marginalized background um, or the story features um, marginalized storylines and, and, and characters, then um, you can use that. I have some, some kinds of feelings sometimes about just leaning <laughs> into hashtag own voices yeah. as like an easy moniker for you know, you're different and you're right about it. But, <laughs> but for the sake of brevity, I'll just say, yeah, you can, yeah. you can use own voices. It as can be a good thing point. to call out, especially if it's relevant to the, the book topic. Absolutely. And if the yeah. authors come, of course, like, you know, some authors are more or less comfortable with this kind of thing. Also, it's like a very, I assume this is also something you guys are kind of having an ongoing conversation about with the authors, like, here's how we want to frame this book. And they have the opportunity to be like, please don't do that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And hopefully by the time you get to launch, you've been working in the book for uh, about a year with yeah. an author. So you would know them well enough. And and just, this is backing way up, but, but I just want to make sure that, that I'm clear. So this is launch, and you mean like inside the publisher? Because I think when people hear that, they're thinking, it's my book launch. My book is coming out no. today. Yeah. And this is entirely like... It's great. Like I don't think people even think about it this yeah. way. You're kind of like ringing a cowbell. You're like, everybody pay attention to this book now. <laughs> hear ye, hear ye. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's like entirely internal, usually like a year and sometimes more than a, a year. A year to 18 months in advance of a book's publication. I don't think people have any idea that this happens. And I'm no. really glad we're talking about it because it's like such a huge deal. It's a, it's a big deal for editors because there's so much material to prepare, right? You have yeah. your tip sheets, which yeah. also include comp titles and those some of them have changed in yeah. the year or two you've been working on the book so you have to update all of that and um uh, an editor typically well for me i work on at least 15 books a year and we have three selling seasons at macmillan meaning i have to do this meeting three times a year Mm-hmm. So that's at least five titles where you have to have all of that information, the selling handles, the comp titles, the description, the praise, author bios, everything all lined up for the tip sheets. And then you prepare the PowerPoint. And so usually we're scrambling a little bit because it's so far ahead of the book's publication that everything is still a work in progress. And so you're begging the artist to please, please send I in. Say, I bet I could trace when launch for my book was by going back through my email to when I got like three emails in a day about like, hey, is your bio up to date? And like all this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Where were you born? <laughs> yeah. Have you recently updated? Remember that giant questionnaire you filled out when we acquired your book like two years ago? Is that still up to date? Yes. Do you still live in the same place? Because we need to tell people if you can do local events Exactly. What is your favorite bookstore? <laughs> no, you can't just say Barnes and Noble. You have to be specific. Which one? Where? <laughs> Cross streets, please. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty detailed form. It's different from publisher to publisher. But for this one, you know, why do we ask for an author's favorite bookstore? Why do we ask for an author's hometown? And it's because when you have your indie bookseller meeting, you're 
sales rep from Macmillan can say, hey, this is a local author. They're only two hours away. They can drive and do an amazing event. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, you add on a handful of regional events and word gets out among the booksellers that your um, book is fantastic or you're a fantastic presenter. And then that can lead to more requests and more events. So you've got this launch meeting. Mm-hmm. What happens after that in talking to to people in house? I'm just picturing this is a boat now. The boat is yeah running away from the dock. We're all green. <laughs> so um, after the launch meeting, um, well, during the launch meeting, sometimes questions come up regarding a title of a book, yay or nay. Yeah. Sometimes um, people and by, and by which you mean like the title and not the book no yeah by the title <laughs> yeah. yes yes the book's acquired you can't <laughs> sales can't back up then like they can't just say no we don't like it anymore <laughs> yeah but um yeah they all make comments on the title of the book or sometimes if you have a cover ready they'll have comments on that too sometimes they'll be looking at the information on the tip sheet and will say you know don't forget to add this comp or you know this one doesn't really work you get immediate feedback. And then after launch, I believe it's about two months that we have a preliminary marketing plan discussion. And this is where the marketing and publicity and sales teams meet and sort of identify the titles that, when I say titles, I mean books. For some reason in publishing, instead of saying books, people say titles. It's very confusing. <laughs> but it's true. Yes. Yeah, it is. So I'll just make it simple. Um, so they decide which books that they really want to focus on. So unfortunately, especially for a larger house, the list of books that they're selling for that season can be so big that they can't give every single book that special love and attention. And so after launch, they meet and as a group with the publishers, identify the books that they really want to put more marketing publicity effort behind. And so those become what they call the lead titles and extended lead titles. The lead titles are the A crowd, They're the mean girls. They walk around. Everyone follows them. (laughs) The extended lead titles. Extremely accurate. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone's (laughs) jealous of the lead titles. And then the extended lead titles are sort of like the really cool band people. Usually there's a reason for a specific market why they are, um, why people get really excited about them. There could be a book that's really great for the librarian market, but maybe not so much for the trade market, but because it can get gain so much traction in with among educators and librarians, that would be designated as an extended lead. And everyone else is the general population of the school. So how involved are you with that decision? Like when you're presenting your books at launch, are you thinking like this one is one I'd like to be a lead and do you present them differently based on how you feel that way? I do. I, I know that it's really heartbreaking to think about a hierarchy in terms of marketing a book. Um, and so for some authors, they hear that their book is in a lead and then they say, I'm doomed. My book is doomed. It ends here. Um, but I think that there's also a reality behind what a publisher can and can't do. 
And so, again, kind of following that philosophy of making it easy for my team rather than coming out and saying, you must pay attention to every single book I do because I definitely don't feel that every single book of mine deserves way more attention than everybody else's. Um, That that kind of ego doesn't exist for me. It it might exist for some editors, but I, I don't have that. I do have enough ego, though. My ego is when I pick a book of mine and I say, this one is a lead title. And then I will mention it to my publisher too, um, to say, you know, when you all have these meetings, please know that, you know, when we acquired this book, people were saying it should be a lead title. I would remind my publisher of that. I will say for the following reasons, the concept, the timeliness or the author's growing platform, I might say, this is another reason why I really need people to be paying special attention to this book. Is it like choosing a favorite child? It sometimes feels like it. But I, again, I have to be realistic and say, you know, this darling little book about a, you know, little sweet animal character doing a very sweet thing is probably not going to knock the socks off of people. But here is a 20-year-old comics prodigy who has written a 400 page memoir that is incredibly powerful that gives me more to push for we talked to um diana about this a little bit when we were talking to her about blurbs is this also sort of like is it set pretty early is this kind of like an evolving thing like oh like when we acquired this book this author only had 50 twitter followers and had just graduated from school but then they you know made a movie on YouTube that got 3 million views and all of a sudden, like, I mean, so things kind of change over time and over the course of the book or... They can. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes you buy something on proposal and as it's coming together, you start to think, "Mm, this isn't what we had originally envisioned. And then you can't, you know, all honesty, go in front of your team and say, this is what I've sold you (laughs) in the acquisitions meeting. It's still great. You have to have... um, an objectivity to the work you do. Um, and then speaking of blurbs, around the time of launch is around the time the manuscript should start being finalized. And so shortly thereafter, you might want to start getting blurbs. Blurbs only work. Generally, we've heard time again, time and again from sales if it's from a major author like a John Green or a Brian K. Vaughn or Neil Gaiman. Someone who is uh, has immediate name recognition um, and something that we're seeing a lot of people doing now for galleys um, is um, the galleys are the promotional copies that are not reflective of the final book that get sent out to um, booksellers and uh, reviewers. And so it's the first people's peak at the full book. Um, but for galleys, um, if you want blurbs for that, a lot of people say that bookseller galleys are incredibly helpful. So, yeah, so getting yeah. booksellers to like say, I read an early manuscript of this and it was so good. Mm-hmm. Other booksellers, you should think so too. And other booksellers hopefully are reading that and saying, oh, I know you. Yeah. <laughs> this is like a personal word of mouth, you know, support of the book. So you have this meeting with marketing and sales and publicity and they're like, okay, this is how we want to position the book. It's a lead or it's an extended lead or it's a book. And, and to be clear, most books are books and that's fine. Like it, 
I feel like cartoonists feel like, yeah, like they're a failure if their book isn't like a lead title of their season. It's like the vast majority of books are not the lead title of their season, and most of them do just fine. It's fine. Yes, I've had books that aren't lead titles sell a lot of copies. Yeah. Because it's a good book. Yeah. And like sometimes more copies than the lead or extended lead yes. books. That is devastating when you have only the latter. <laughs> so... Um, just because something's a lead title and gets all the bells and whistles does not mean it's going to do well either. Or sometimes it just means that your book that is a, a book is going to work in and of itself, right? That it's not a book that will need a lot of bells and whistles to... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, Jean, I'm sorry, you were saying... Yeah, so you have that meeting and you're like, okay... My, my book is a book or it's in these one of these other categories. Um, what's the next step after that? So our marketing publicity teams work about six to eight months ahead of time prior to a book's publication. So before that, sometimes authors like a year before publication start to ask, you know, what do you need from me for marketing publicity? Or I have this idea. Can we act on it now? And it's just too soon. They're still working on... Um, the books for the season prior to, to yours. And they also know that, say they send out a flare and say, hey, this book is coming out in a year, people will forget. And so you've wasted that sort of effort or that media opportunity on a book that's not ready for sale yet. When you want to do like a big cover reveal or a big excerpt share is usually when the buy links go live for a book on, you know, um, various online, uh, online retailers. And that generally happens about six months, um, three to six months prior to publication. So, so that's why you have to be really careful of the timing. Um, so after that initial marketing plan meeting, then marketing and publicity take the feedback from editorial yet again, and then um, send out, if you're, well, for a, a Macmillan, if your book is a lead or extended lead, they'll customize a plan to that book. Um, and it's a very customized plan uh, where they decide whether or not your book is um, geared towards educators or national trade accounts like Barnes & Noble, or they think it's best for independent booksellers. And there is a different kind of book that can succeed in these different markets. Some succeed across all three and some just have a different, um, I can't even put my... Some of them have a different focus or audience. Exactly, or, exactly. Or appeal. Exactly. And appeal is the word. I was looking for appeal. So then after that point, um, we get uh, the first draft of a marketing plan that marketing sends us um, just to look at. And then we have, sometimes we have a meeting to go through the plan so that at that point I can say, well, the author mentioned that she has contacts at Bustle and they are going to yeah. do something big. And, or you might say the author, um, her mom knows everyone in their, you know, school community. So we should probably try to do some school visits and, and things yeah. like that. So you make suggestions at that point and then the marketing plan gets, finalized. Uh, it's a constantly evolving plan too. Things happen, as you say, um, as time goes on, that person with 50 Twitter followers might have those 3 million YouTube views or 
as the book comes together. Sometimes an editor even says, wow, this book is really good. Like I bought it as a commercial, you know, like fun read. And it's turning out to be something quite extraordinary. So before you guys said that this was a good book for like the trades, but I think that we should do a special, you know, push in um, the school library market as well. God, that's such a great feeling, though. Like, I always worry that I'm coming across as being insulting when I say stuff like that. I have a book that I was doing freelance editing on. And, like, it was a, it was always a good book. But, like, as it really started to come together, I'm like, this is, like, a really good book. Yeah. And I was trying to communicate this in a way that was being, like, you've done an exceptionally good job without implying that I thought they weren't going to do a good job. Yeah, yeah. It's it, well, it's because you said you've gone above and beyond. You yeah. Know, you've made this. There's into- like a little magic in the details where it all starts to come together and you're exactly. like, this was always going to be good, but you like really kind of nailed it. Made it yeah. even, even better. I don't have a book like that. And it's, it's really good now. <laughs> I'm very proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> How do you... Like what? What's the next step for you and the the marketing publicity people? When does when is the point when they kind of come on board for a specific book project? Well, they um, mentioned about six to eight months um, is when uh, everyone gets assigned. Uh, usually around eight months, I think, and then then that's when um, the publicist may reach out to me and say, "Hey, can you introduce me to the author? I think it's time for us to start talking events, talk shop." So. And are you ever like, I would like you specific publicist or specific marketing person to be working on this, this book, because I think it's a great fit with the things that you are interested in. Sometimes. And sometimes, you know, you want to create those in-house relationships so that you can go to a specific marketer or publicist and say, you know, not trying to tell you what to do, but we would have so much fun working on this book together. (laughs) And there's so many hooks to it. And the author is going to love you. You're going to love the author. You guys are going to get along great. It's it's really good to tell publicists that because they are often on the road with an author. And I know this varies. You know what? I don't know. I assume that this varies from publisher to publisher. I didn't realize until pretty recently that um, because I'd only experienced it from like the author side for a long time that the marketing publicity people like they don't work for the editor they work at the publisher yeah. and they're kind of working in parallel but they're not like your employees where you're like do my bidding so it's like so i get the sense it's kind of like a really interesting like we're colleagues and we're all working on this book together and i have a sense of how i want this to go but i can't just be like do it yeah <laughs> no it's quite the opposite you know just as you know um people you know gina and i talked about the top of this this episode is um, being nice. Nice goes a long way in in these kinds of relationships. And that goes for agents and authors as well. So you can be um, a little pushy, you know, because you're saying, you know, I have a certain thing I want to happen for my book. But you got to be nice about it because the minute you're not nice, like that natural enthusiasm goes away. And it's not like anyone sets out to do a bad job, but you try hanging out with someone you don't like for days, you know, (laughs) it doesn't make any sense to ruin relationships at any level. And I think that goes for in-house connections too. And and then oftentimes that just happens naturally. For instance, Gina and I chatting in the late evening um, out in the office um, and kind of building a rapport from there. Or um, 
saying to someone, hey, you did really well on this other project. I really like that. And if you work with me on this project, you know, I hope you bring that extraordinary talent to this as well. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the reasons specifically why we wanted to talk to you for this episode is because of the number of people at Macmillan who have said to me in the past, like who in the marketing publicity department, who's like, Connie's so great. I always love working with her on books. Uh, So I think this is something that you are, you are very skilled at. I keep candy at my desk. (laughs) (laughs) They think it's because I'm nice. I'm not buying candy because I'm nice. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, You're you're diabolically buying candy, but also because you're nice. It has a twofold purpose. And thanking people. (laughs) You thank them because they're People don't do that. Yes. You do something nice to me. Thank you for doing that. I know that was annoying. Because anything I ask you to do is going to come off as annoying because I'm asking you to do something and you're a very busy person. So thank you for doing that. Or if you know if you know that you need to go to your marketer or your publicist with um, an extra request from the author or agent mm-hmm. and you know they're going to be an- annoyed, you're almost kind of like, you know, please, sir, a little more. <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> you don't demand it. You just, you know, make the request and be honest about you know, what your expectations are. So going back to the marketing and publicity people getting in touch and being like, we work in parallel to you and we report to someone else. So we really get to do whatever we want, but we're working on this book. Um, (laughs) Do you just connect them? Do you sit down and have a meeting with them? Mm -hmm. Does it depend? It depends, but generally um, it's always great before a publicist and marketer reach out to an author and oftentimes they copy in and loop in their agents um, to have a sit down just so that they're aware of what the expectations are for the book, of any special requests. And also a little bit about the author's personality, what you can ask them to do. Sometimes they'll say, can we ask this author to produce additional art assets? And I always love them and I'm able to say, yeah, ask them anything. Like Dan Santad is a good example of that. Vera is actually yeah. really generous and yeah. fast. Yeah. With, or with Tilly too. Tilly too. Yeah. I just work with some really wonderful people who are more than willing to um, put in the extra effort to make it easy for our team. This is fascinating that I'm talking to you about this because literally like four hours ago, I first got my cc intro email to my new publicist at tour and then 10 minutes later is like and here's some art we'd love if you could draw <laughs> which i mean i'm happy to draw but it's just it's like oh we're like this yeah, is my life this is definitely the result of that <laughs> yes they had a meeting and they asked your editor is it okay if we ask her to do things and your editor said oh yeah she's great go ahead and ask her god i hope so i tried yeah. I and, try to behave. Hey, listen, being pleasant and willing to do stuff. I mean, there's, sometimes I feel bad when I'm like, no, the artist thinks that their work is incredibly precious. And you may not ask them for anything. <laughs> That's a little tougher. Although I, I feel like the other thing, and, and we've talked about this before, but and I tell cartoonist friends of mine this all the time, especially when they're on like crazy deadline or something. It's like, just because somebody asks you for something doesn't mean that you have to do it or you're fired. Like if they're like, can you do this? And the answer is no, I can't because I need to be inking the book that day. And I physically don't have time to do this. Like that's fine. Nobody's going to be mad at you. Just tell them. And it's fine. They're asking because they would love if you could do this, but if you don't do it, you're not in trouble. For sure. Or, 
I can't do it now. Yeah, exactly. But I, when you need it, bye. Yeah. Is, is, is also, um, you know, totally fine to say. And you don't have to do it. It's so great when people have time because it can be such a nice... Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely you, as a part of author care, you don't want to say, I need several things from you by later tonight because <laughs> I forgot about this deadline. You know, yeah. it's, 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 it's a little unfair. But then, you know, I, I, I really do think it's helpful to be generous where you can because it's not like you're producing free material for the publisher. It is in favor of selling your book. It is for promotion. That's a really important distinction because I think a lot of cartoonists, especially ones who come from a work-for-hire background, are, are really one where they're paid a page rate for every page that they do. Exactly. Yeah. And they're really thinking about it in terms of like, why am I not getting paid to do this extra work? Because they're thinking of their advance as a page rate and therefore this is free work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's always like, this is... Ye- your book, like, I mean, assuming we're talking about a creator-owned graphic novel yeah. here, it's like, again, you don't have to do it if you don't want to, but people are asking you to do this because they think that you will sell more books and your book will be more successful and you'll have a better debut of your book if you do this thing, not because they just want you to suffer. And you get royalties. I mean, that's the thing. You're, you're literally, you're going to get paid. You're just going to get paid like a dollar at a time. On the back end. Yeah. Slowly. But yes, yes. <laughs> because of course your book will earn out because it's genius, heartbreaking work and it advances your career too. So even exactly. if it doesn't earn out, hey, don't fret. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people bought your book. It's true. So your publicist and your marketing person on the book are introduced to the author. They're off to the races. How involved are you? in that conversation? Are you kind of like, you're doing your own thing, I'm over here? Or are you like, I'm CC'd on every email, closely monitoring what's happening? I like to be copied on every email because if something were to go wrong in the communications or if needs aren't being met, then it's good for me to be looped in. I hate being blindsided. The worst is getting an, an, an email from an agent being like, we need to talk. <laughs> Oh, no. The dreaded email. We need to talk, yeah. And then so the editor actually works as a liaison between the author and the agent and the rest of the in-house staff. And the reason is it, it, it just streamlines the communication, but it does add quite a bit to an editor's workload, which pertains to the emails that I talked about. A lot of it is... Um, volleying requests and concerns um, between your team at the publisher and with um, the author and agent. Okay, so this is all kind of coming together. You're CC'd on the emails. You're like, okay, things are going how I want. And then the book comes out, which is great. Is that kind of the end? Are you like, okay, we have this book. It's two weeks later. My my job working with marketing and publicity and sales is done. I have fought all my battles and now yeah. I may rest. No, no. Well, first I want to find out how the events went. So our publicity team often will send, if they're on tour with the author photos of the author in action at school visits or at signings. Sometimes they'll get from uh, a bookseller, a bookstore, how a launch went. They'll get how many copies were sold and how many people came. They'll just get some feedback. So you want to know. I also check sales obsessively. Our sales system updates once a week, and I always want to find out, you know, how the book is doing, where it's selling, um, and that way I'm prepared in case the author or agent have any questions about, you know, how was the first week. You know, sometimes I get a little 
a little like taken aback because I'm like, oh my God, the book just came out like two days ago. I don't have information. You know, is there is there a point where this advocating for and monitoring the book and like talking to people in house ends or can it kind of come back up like a year later or, you know, at an indefinite point in the future? Well, I think um, a good good example is uh, with Real Friends by Shannon Hale and Lewin Pham, where I was driving the sales, and fortunately the book um, did very well at pub and continued to grow and fell into a really nice steady pace. And yay. a lot of people were, yeah. Yay, you, yay, that book. Yay, Shannon and Wen. And a they're lot so of, great. Yeah, they're great. It's a, Everyone's nice. Yeah. That's the other thing. <laughs> but... um. A lot of people were saying, you know, it's sales track is, you know, it's not Raina Telgemeier who is like str- stratospherically popular. Yes. Yes. That's what I was thinking of. <laughs> but it was, you know, we did looking at Raina's sales, I, you know, you think, okay, but she stayed really consistent for um, months and years after pub. And so at uh, around the six month point, maybe a little earlier, I remember I'm um, contacting the sale, the, the marketing and publicity team on that book and saying, can we meet again just to talk about how to continue putting some ad dollars or putting some publicity behind it to remind people about this book so it's not forgotten. I feel like sometimes because people are so busy and there are so many books, there's a tendency to say, yay, that worked. Let's move on. And, mm-hmm. and when you really want, um, to, to, to continue success and, and boost longevity of a book, it's good to sort of check in and remind people about it. And does any of this change if the book is, for instance, like part of a series? Absolutely. I mean, in the for a series, you generally have kind of built into the marketing mindset that you want to be promoting the book in between the publication of subsequent books in the series. And then there's some other books. Uh, I'm thinking about Vera Braskell's Leave Me Alone, where like the January, February of the next year after the book comes out, there might be a moment that you're relaunching an entire book campaign. Or You mean at that point, do I go back to, <laughs> yeah. oh, well, they better know the market <laughs> and sell the book at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Leave me alone when I got the Caldecott honor. It was a, for Vera's debut picture book, it was a good time to say to people, you know, now her name is going to be just as uh, renowned in that market as it is in graphic novels. She's really good with her debuts. Yeah. Good job. And then some, so. She's super great. Um, so how do you make sure that things are going the right way? Do you have some sort of like internal calculator of like, yes, things are on track that you kind of look for? Monitoring all these emails, you're being CC'd on. Yeah. You've got your finger in the wind. like. So, yeah, I think that sometimes something feels very seamless. And I think that's, it's not a tangible thing. It's not any given marketing bullet point or publicity event. It's just a sense that people genuinely love the book and everyone is on the same level about it. So an example of that would be Real Friends, I think. I think that um, from the get-go, people understood what it was, its readership, how to market it, how to use the author and artist's existing best-selling platform for their other series, Princess in Black, 
and to, you know, um, play to their strengths. And so that one just felt really seamless. And there are times when it doesn't feel seamless. It feels like an uphill battle. And then you get the sense that something feels off about it. And it could be that maybe the marketing plan wasn't perfect for the book and people are starting to have doubts or the author that you thought was going to be so gung-ho about promoting isn't as excited or actually hates doing, you know, publicity. Or like got a full-time job unexpectedly yeah and is less available now exactly things can happen that's completely out of your control too and i think that's when you do feel a little helpless and oftentimes you know some of those issues play into why a book can be a big lead title and still not perform are there things that authors can do that are useful in order to help you navigate this process of dealing with people internally like is it helpful for them to, for instance, be upfront, be like, here's a list of things that I'm willing to do? Because I think that some people feel very presumptuous because they're like, oh, this is assuming anybody wants me to do any of these things. Like, is that... I love it when authors think about the things they want to do. I love it when they ask questions. Um, I would love it the most if they waited until six to eight months prior to publication (laughs) to unleash all of this. Because again, I'm working on three to four different seasons at a time and books at different stages. So if you throw the list of things I'm willing to do at me at acquisition, I'm probably not going to remember it. So, but yeah, it's, it's good to know because that way when I'm meeting with my team, I can say, Hey, did you know the author is willing to do the following things? Or this author uh, has found a book festival that they're really into. They've, they've gone to it. They think they're great. They just want you to, to know if you would pitch them for it. The publicist is more than happy to do that. And that's another thing. So we've talked about, you know, for instance, you're dealing with stuff six to eight months out, like between our own experience and people we've even talked to on the podcast, like obviously this varies. Like, so should authors be asking their editor, like, hey, when should I be talking to you about this stuff and not necessarily assume that every publisher is going to work the same way? Yeah, a timeline is always good to give to an author. That's something I've been working on, too, to have sort of like what to expect um, quick one-sheet write-up for an author so that they know when they can start thinking about these things and when it's early or too late. (laughs) I think I got one of these from Gina when I first signed with First Second like a million years ago, actually. Yeah, that was a thing that I had made up for First Second back in my my storied past. (laughs) Uh, Not that long ago. Yes. (laughs) Six six months ago in my storied past. Although in my past, I think this was like four or five years ago. That's true. Um, So what happens if you have discord between what the marketing and publicity people are saying, like, yes, this is the plan that we think is good for a book, and what the author and the agent are telling you that they think? Sometimes, um, depending on the book, it's good to bring the groups together. So this is why publishing being centered in New York is important because FaceTime is still more important than email. So if you do have disagreements on how a book is being marketed, it's really helpful, even if the author can't make a meeting I mean, definitely, you probably don't want the author in the meeting because you're paying your agent to do the tough talking for you, you know, as your, like, liaison. You don't want to be there. But um, but an agent can come in and have a sit-down with the publisher 
or, you know, with, um, uh, the marketing publicity and editorial teams to talk through things. And so sometimes it's just a matter of a miscommunication because nobody wants to do the wrong thing for the book. So if the agent says, listen, I see this thing you're not doing. Why aren't you, can someone explain it to me? And sometimes it's helpful for them to hear, you know what, we put the budget in this other area and it wasn't quite working, but we did it in good faith. And hearing that people are all trying their best efforts is often really helpful in sort of settling that discord between people. We're all on the same team in that we want the book to succeed. And that's a good thing to remember. Another thing that often happens is they want the publisher to do more and they're very frustrated with the publisher not being able to do more. And here is where some editors differ on how they want to handle it. I tend to lean on the side of transparency and then to say, I know you wanted us to do a lead campaign. Unfortunately, it was not selected as a lead title. And so I can work with you on thinking about ideas on how you can seek out your own events or um, make sure that you're getting people who are writing in to say they love your book to write a review on Goodreads and Amazon, like doable, manageable things that could lift a book, even if a little, it's still helping your book. Um, but oftentimes I've had to tell, hopefully not too often, I have to tell <laughs> agents, here's the reality is that um, we're not doing an author tour. But, you know, ball's in your court now. If you come to me with a list of asks that we can do, then we have a conversation. But just being yelled at by someone who's saying, you're not doing enough, that doesn't actually help me go to my team and say, let's do more for this book. Are there are there specific books and authors that it's easier to advocate for? Like, are there specific things that makes the met that make the marketing and sales and publicity team get really excited about a book for sure well uh, an author who's eager to promote that makes it easy for them to envision how they can like send out that person to be in in the public <laughs> yeah. um also that willingness to provide assets That's- yeah um probably uh either like good comp titles where there's not a lot in the marketplace. Oh, yeah. As a selling point? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Or a strong backlist for the author. And we also talked about, you know, things that um, booksellers are looking for. So we talked about hashtag own voices, (laughs) which is... I also just heard that, like, llamas are the new trend. (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't know how relevant this is to specific, um, like, book marketing llamas are the new narwhal yeah so it's like if you come up with a graphic novel about llamas that's coming out in the time that they're still trendy like maybe you know specific topicality makes things easier to promote ride the llama wave ride the llama wave and also pointing to other things that's part of pop culture um for instance um the walking dead um a lot of parents are watching that show but they weren't necessarily letting their seven-year-old watch it or eight-year-old. And then um, there's this um, middle-grade author named Max Brailler who came out with a series called Last Kids on Earth um, that's you know basically like a zombie apocalypse. And it's totally appropriate for that age range. So it's for the kids who are aware of The Walking Dead. How could you not be aware? There were ads everywhere. But then your parents won't let you watch it. So 
you have a desire and hunger for that. And so that can be a selling point as well to say this is for, you know, the, the kids of the fans of dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Um, so is there anything that you found in your experience is different between the comics that you've worked on and the prose books or picture books as far as this process goes? I think the comics world is very different. Um, it's in some ways a, a very contained community, um, but it's also a fervent community. <laughs> so I think that um, success for a comics creator is it's, it's quite different from a prose creator. Um, for prose, you have to, beyond getting really strong reviews, um, your book is supposedly available it, or you hope it's more available across all the accounts, whereas you can be successful within the comics world, but not necessarily successful in the trade world and still be, you know, relevant and the publisher will still want to continue publishing with you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the trade world here is like bookstores, libraries, schools, and then, you know, mass market. So things like Target and Walmart. Exactly. All of that. And think for comics, your book doesn't have to succeed in those areas in order to be considered a success. You can be successful um, through conventions and comic stores. And also, I mean, just in terms of like talking to people inside the publisher, uh, does the fact that you have like this big shiny object that is very easy to look at and like, it, you know, like a novel can be a really amazing novel, but it's like, it's a novel. Like you have to yeah. sit down. It takes a long time to read. It's words on paper. You can't flip through it and be like, I'm definitely going to like this. Yeah. I mean, graphic novel is like inherently very quick to consume. Does that, make any of these conversations easier or faster for you or does it not really make much of a difference? I mean, if the, it's like the, with the picture book. If the art is really great, you get people on board right away. But funnily enough, not everyone finds graphic novels easy to read. And so you can't always rely on that. You know, I don't want to be ageist, but I do think that um, sometimes there is a previous generation of people who work in publishing who are not familiar with graphic novels and actually have a really hard time engaging with them, you know, at the outset. You know, they're like, what do I look at first, the words or the pictures? <laughs> and that confuses me a little bit because I'm not sure how to tell someone. You're basically teaching them how to read, essentially. You're yeah. remapping the way they process information. So that's another way in which you're advocating is to be like, it's worth the time. Here's yeah. how to read this comic. The kids will love it. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Also, you look at the words and pictures together. Yes. I did have, I had, a, I had a novelist friend a million years ago who confessed to me at one point that she basically only read the words in comics and like only looked at the pictures to establish who was talking and otherwise basically ignored them and just read the entire People book. People find it distracting. Yeah. Because they all say, um, I, I, I looked at the words and now you're making me look at the pictures and I can't go back you know it's like yeah. I'm, I'm switching uh back and forth and it's very distracting or they'll say like you know do, when i look at the next panel do you want me to look at the picture first before i read the speech bubble That's so interesting they actually have have ish, uh, you know questions about that and i'm I like mean, it's, it's I, yeah because you i mean cartoonists are used to thinking about things like page turns and whatnot when they're thinking about the reader experience but it's interesting to think about somebody looking at a page and literally being like am i cheating if i look at the last panel should i only look at the first panel yeah yeah 
And then they they get very like stressed. It's, about, I shouldn't be charmed by this, but I am. <laughs> I feel time. I feel like I'm being condescending and being charmed by this. It's a different it was, process, you know. And yeah. what makes someone accustomed to reading? I have no idea. Yeah. You know, I I don't know what it feels like to be someone confused by. But on the other hand, some people will say, "How do you look at a script and know it's good?" Yeah, yeah, and that's really hard. That's actually really hard. Comic scripts are hard to read. Yeah, yeah. and picture book scripts too. So because I think I, um, comics came a little bit easier for me to edit because I edited um, so many picture books. Yeah, that I was like, okay, I get this. I have to make a mental leap <laughs> sometimes. Um, so, what advice do you have for people who want to have a job like yours? Uh, good advice is to do internships. I think that um, the candidates I've seen coming at entry level for editorial often have um, at least one internship, either at a publisher or an agency under their belt. And it's a good way to sort of get working immediately because New York is an expensive place to live and you have to justify to yourself and to your parents that you're doing this for a $30,000 a year full-time job at the end of the road. <laughs> but um, so that's good to have. And also working at a bookstore is also good, good hands-on experience. And a lot of people still reference that experience. Yeah. I worked at a bookstore. See? Ta-da. Yes. And a library. Yes. And how did you justify to yourself and to your parents what you were about to do with your life? <laughs> um, Gina makes no excuses. No. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't <Yeah>. care. <laughs> Uh, I actually lived at home for the first six months that I had my first job. And I was like, if it doesn't work out, then I won't have the expense of a lease and I can just find something new to do. So get your parents to move to the area (laughs) where said job might exist. Indeed. My parents actually live like three hours away from New York. So I had this insane commute when I was first starting in publishing. I did not know this. You have not told me this before. Poor tiny Dina. I know. It turned out to be a reasonable life choice because I mean, part of that six months was also just me like looking for the perfect apartment. And I found an excellent apartment, which I now still live in. Still, I didn't realize you'd had that apartment that entire time. Yeah. That's insane. That's also that's, that's almost dream, unheard man. of yeah. in New York. So well, we figured it all out. Yeah. <laughs> so be like Gina and figure out every step. <laughs> Gina told me about you know you you said that being publisher of of a comics imprint was in your yeah. sight someday and yeah. and here yep. you are. How it works. It's very funny that Gina and I are co-hosting this podcast because Gina is on one end of like I decided I was going to do this and then I did this thing and then I did the next thing and I progressed in this very logical and straightforward, very planned way. Methodical. And I've just careened around following weird opportunities that have dropped into my like I started in animation. Like it's I've ended up in a very strange place based on well, I'm going to do this thing that's probably a bad idea. <laughs> and see, you can always end up where you need to end up. You, you can do it either way. It turns out okay. I'm a little bit of both where I didn't set out to be in publishing, but ended up in publishing and then was like, well, this mountain seems fun. I guess I'll just climb it. <laughs> Fine. Yeah. One after one foot after. And now you're executive editor, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. It seems like you guys are both killing it, honestly. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
process. I wouldn't say I'm killing it. I'd say it's killing me, but <laughs> no. Um, is there is there anything else you want to talk about that we didn't cover? No, I think that you guys were very thorough. <laughs> okay, so if people are listening to this podcast and they want to find out about you on the internet, where where can they come and find out about you and their and your books? Uh, you can go to Twitter where I appear once a month. Uh, at You're Ms. like a where tweeter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I only go and like things that people tag me in. So if you want to find me, it's at Miss Connie H for Instagram as well, where you'll find mostly pictures of my baby. And you can also Google me, but I'm not the tennis phenom Connie Shoe or the real estate developer or the neuroscientist from Taiwan. <laughs> if you want to Google me, you might want to put Connie Shoe, comma, editor. <laughs> Is that helpful? <laughs> yes. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us all about advocating for books. Thank you for having me. I hope it was informative. In our next episode, we'll talk all about marketing, one of my favorite parts of the publishing process. It's all about connecting books and readers. So that'll be lots of fun. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilkes and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at GraphicNovelTK or email us at GraphicNovelTK at gmail.com. I just made things up. All of it was fake. It's all a lie. This is all a con. This is, this is exactly. It's in my name. <laughs> so You've got a pocket full of smoke bombs. You're going to throw them and run. And, and disappear and people will never hear of me again. Well, you are a Slytherin. That's true. Oh, my gosh. Why Gina, you're you- calling people out on this podcast. Slytherin. I am a Slytherin. I'm a Hufflepuff. Most cartoonists are, if they're oh. being honest with themselves. We work very hard and, and you for very little glory. Kindness in your veins. I hope so. That would be nice. Mostly I think it's the pointless hard work, but you know. That's why you have endeavored in this life of pain. Yeah, basically. <laughs> That's what... And you're Ravenclaw? Yes. Of course you are. Yeah, of course you are. Yeah, I'm a nice Slytherin. You are. You're I very actually, nice. I have a deep well of affection for Slytherins. Gryffindors are no. idiots, so it's fine. <laughs> well, I would say that the the main reason I'm probably a Slytherin is like, I wouldn't run into a burning building to save people if I actually do calculate that me running in would just kill me and everyone else. Yeah, no, that's just that's it, that wouldn't make it. So a Gryffindor yeah. would run in. A Slytherin would say, let me think about it, and that makes me evil? Excuse me? No, no sl- it's just pragmatic. A Slytherin the one who's like, this book isn't going to be a lead title, and I'm not going to burn my career down advocating for it. Perhaps. <laughs> this is def- <laughs> I, I like, okay, so for the record, I put bloopers in the end of the, <laughs> the podcast most of the time. This so, is, is going to be a, if people listen to the credits, they get to hear us talk about what houses we're in. The Slytherin. <laughs> I still remember I took that Pottermore test in the office and everyone started screaming when they found out I was Slytherin because no one expected it. And then I found out Clissa was Slytherin and felt a little bit better. That's very alone. I was surrounded by Ravenclaws and Hufflepuffs. 
So. It's very funny. I'm not slurring. I just am realistic. 